0: Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman, And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we'll be discussing the plot, themes, characters, art, music, and gameplay of Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, or Final Fantasy USA. That's right, we're doing it. We're doing this, despite its reputation in the franchise. We're going to have a lot of fun talking about this game. It was originally released in October of 1992. It was directed by Kouzi Ide. It was written by Chirihiro Fujioka and composed, and this is important, the music was composed by Ryuji Sasai. Uh, There's a lot of names coming at you there. Not the normal names from the Final Fantasy franchise, you may have noticed. A couple of notes on these guys. The writer has an interesting history. He was a video game designer, obviously, for this one, but was a composer and a rock drummer. So even the writer of the game has a musical background, which I think you come to see that the main quality of this game is its music, that kind of tracks. But he's also known for directing Super Mario RPG, a truly fantastic game, and has been involved in the Mario and Luigi games. I also found this really fascinating. He is currently a member of a band called Earthbound Papas, which is led by Final Fantasy composer Nobuo Uematsu. The actual composer of the game, Ryuji Sasai, we don't know a whole lot about him, and one of the things that's fascinating is that in a lot of early games, in uh, especially the first generation of Nintendo games... We didn't know who composed. Sometimes they went uncredited. For example, in early Mega Man games, a lot of the music goes uncredited. So we do have uh, this guy's name, but we don't know a whole lot more about him other than him working on Final Fantasy Mystic Quest and Final Fantasy Legend 3. So you may be wondering why all this talk about the music up front in this game. And a part of the reason why that is the case is that it's one of the very few aspects of this game that was universally positively received. The game, for the most part, is considered to be one of the worst in the franchise. Some people don't even like to consider it a member of the franchise. It got a 29 out of 40 from Electronic Gaming Monthly. It was generally not well received. It has been described, and I'm reading off of the Wikipedia page here, but as Final Fantasy with an identity crisis and had an inherent flaw of being a game that did not appeal to either the masses or the hardcore gaming audience. It's mostly well understood that this game was designed to bring in new players to either the Final Fantasy series or to Japanese role-playing games in general. It was supposed to be kind of a gateway drug, an entry to (laughs) this whole experience. And though I think you and I are about to talk about A lot of this game that we think really did work and and gets a bad rap in some ways, I think it's fair to say it did not do what it was intended to do. It did not bring in the casual audience and turn them into hardcore Final Fantasy fans.
1: In fact, it in many cases did the opposite, turning a lot of people off. Well, for me, and I think I've said this before on previous episodes, it kind of did bring me in. Uh, Again, my first... Real Final Fantasy was Final Fantasy VI, though I played some Final Fantasy when I was younger than that. Uh, But this is the first one that I bought myself and played all the way through. And I was young at the time, and I didn't really know what Final Fantasy was, quote, supposed to be, unquote. Uh, But I I dug the game, and I still have very fond memories of it. And I played it again just for this particular episode of this podcast. Uh, And I still mostly enjoyed myself.
0: So I want to frame it in this way, and you may take issue with this. I don't know. But (laughs) one of the things I think about, and we've had this conversation just in real life, is about children's literature and the difficulty in trying to judge stuff that's made for an audience that doesn't have a certain kind of experience. So, you know, maybe you can't go as deep in certain ideas, but there is still a trick and a craft to making quality, kind of entry-level or simplified art. And I feel like, to some degree, the critics of this game almost never accepted that premise, that knowing that's what it's supposed to be. For example, I've got right here in front of me, the OneUp.com review of the game says it's not worth it because of hand-holding and it being insubstantial. I... I can't disagree with the hand-holding thing. The question, I think, is just, isn't it okay sometimes to hold some
1: people's hands? Right, I think, uh, yeah, talking about it as a, as a children's book is, a, is an interesting way to come at it. I think we need to be careful when talking about kids, like they can't understand things. That's a bad way to put it. Children are able to absorb more than we seem to remember once we become adults. So I think this game does suffer a bit from not trusting its audience, children or otherwise, to understand things, and so it doesn't go as far as it could in some ways, but it also does a pretty good job, I think, of creating a simplified version of what Final Fantasy is. There are still some of the big arcing themes, both in plot and in gameplay, so I don't object to to you referring to it as children's lit. I think it's part of what it was going for. It just didn't do enough to trust its children, as it were.
0: I think that's a really good way to put it. And one other thing before we get into talking about the specifics of the game that I think was difficult for a lot of the audience. We've talked a lot about expectations and how the best way to objectively review art is to get rid of as many expectations as possible but on the heels of final fantasy 4 if you had already come into this franchise a bit as american players even this it was hard to see this as anything other than a step backward and especially if you didn't understand the concept and that you know future games weren't going this wasn't the new direction of the series or anything but after Final Fantasy IV gave us such a deep and mature and, in many ways, challenging experience, I think a lot of people just saw this as, oh no, this, this isn't what I wanted at all out of a Final Fantasy game. And again, that can, in hindsight, you can realize that wasn't really the point. Okay, so what we're going to do a little differently is actually just try to cover this entire game in one episode. Kind of knowing a little bit about all that stuff we just talked about with its reputation. We're going to get through the plot a little quicker, the themes a little quicker, the music, art, gameplay, all of that stuff. And part of that is because I think we both probably feel, and this will be our big question running throughout the conversation, that those elements, there's just not quite as much to analyze in this one, and I don't think too many people would disagree with that.
1: For all that I'm really fond of this game, uh, especially in retrospect, yeah, there's not as much to it. So, let's get right into the plot.
0: What more or less happens in Final Fantasy Mystic Quest?
1: The first thing that happens is there's an earthquake and our hero, young man in a blue suit of armor, who we learn is named Benjamin. Actually, we don't learn that. You get to choose his name. We talked uh, an episode or three ago about choosing names. You only know his name is Benjamin if you have the strategy guide or you read the instruction booklet. So he's, uh, he's escaping this earthquake, and this is actually, I think, the, the biggest missed opportunity of Mystic Quest. We talked about it as maybe kids lit, and children are able to handle more difficult things than we tend to remember once we become adults. Benjamin's entire town was just swallowed by an earthquake. It's mentioned briefly and it never comes up again. And I think this could have been one of those things. Dealing with that that tragedy, with that trauma, could have been a really interesting thread throughout the game, but it never comes back.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I was, I was just having this conversation with a group of friends and somebody had used that phrase, children's literature, to put something down. And we just ran through a quick series of films that we had all watched, uh, starting with *The Land Before Time*. Yep.
1: Secret of Nim. Up. Oh, Up. Yeah. Secret ahead.
0: of Nim. Yeah, yeah. Wally. Anything by Studio Ghibli that we've mentioned? Yeah, *Spirited Away*. I guess it's just a kid's thing. So, but the difference between those things and this that you're talking about there is that they totally respect that their audience can handle that. You know, in retrospect, I'm surprised that the Land Before Time didn't just emotionally stunt me forever,
1: but it didn't. Well, what it did was I, I was able to handle it. You. it. It doesn't right. stunt you; it, it it helps prepare for you know the difficult things of eventually your parents are gonna pass away.
0: Right, and then and volcanoes
1: are involved. I think.
0: <laughs> but yeah, missed opportunity there at the beginning of, of the game, and. Then kind of sets the stage for that throughout.
1: Our hero reaches the top of what is called the Hill of Destiny, and he meets uh, an elderly man in a grayish-blue cloak, long white beard, who talks about there's a prophecy: a knight will appear. And he gives our guy a sword, and he points out over the clouds and says, "The Focus Tower there is the center of the world, and the the vile four, which are our four fiends. Though they're not, they're not called that in this game." Uh, the Vile Four have locked the doors to the Focus Tower and are draining the crystals of their light, which is a very familiar Final Fantasy setup. And then a behemoth appears, and with the sword, this old man is just given our hero. Uh, we're able to fight the behemoth and, and win. And then the old man says, hey, I guess you really are the one. And Benjamin says, I thought you said you were sure that I was the one. And the old man who, if you have the strategy guide, you know his name is White, says, actually, it was more of a guess. And then he takes off on his flying cloud. And Benjamin turns and looks at the camera and sort of shrugs. He's got this little shrug animation emote thing. And that'll happen a lot. This game will, several times throughout, Ben will turn and look at us as the hand of fate and sort of shrug at us, and we just move on with whatever we're doing.
0: I do like that part of it. I think it's got a nice (laughs) little sense of humor about it.
1: Our character goes down into the first chapter of the game, the the Crystal of Earth. Uh, we get to the level forest. The level forest is brown and, and falling apart, and we, are, uh, we meet there an old man. We push aside a boulder for him, and he takes us to Foresta, where we meet Kaylee. Kaylee is our first guest party member. She joins up. She's got a big old axe, and she is determined to help heal the forest she knows there's this evil tree at the end of the forest and she's going to take us there and we're going to chop that sucker down we get there pretty quickly it's a it's a quick dungeon and she chops down the tree and it turns out it's not a tree it's a minotaur and the minotaur poisons her we fight the minotaur we win but kaylee cannot continue the the poison has made her extraordinarily ill so you take her home uh, and her mother says she needs the elixir to heal her so we go up to the sand temple uh, there's a desert just north of the level forest. Uh, and in the sand temple, we open the chest, but there's nothing there. And then this baller music comes on. I'm pretty sure I used that word correctly. And we meet Tristram for the first time.
0: Yeah, probably the most memorable character from this game. As you mentioned, I had even forgotten that the main character was named Benjamin. And I guess there's a reason why, because the game itself didn't think it was important that I know that. But uh, Tristram was definitely, whenever I think about this game, I think of two things. The awesome battle music and Tristram.
1: So Tristram has the elixir and he's willing to give it to you. He's willing to give it to Benjamin as uh, so long as Benjamin comes treasure hunting with him
0: you got to love a friend you meet, and the very first thing he says is, let's go on a treasure-hunting adventure.
1: (laughs) And then maybe I'll help you save your other friend. Yeah. Right. So Benjamin takes you up to the Bone Dungeon. The Bone Dungeon is a pretty quick dungeon. And at the end of it, you fight a boss called Flamorous Rex, which is a big Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton of red bones. Turns out this is our first elemental fiend, one of the Vile Four. You beat Flamorous Rex... The earth crystal reappears and lights up, and Ben's kind of excited. He's like, oh, hey, I, you know, I saved the first crystal. And Tristam says, yeah, but check out this treasure chest over here. And he opens it up, and uh, he takes the, like, I, I remember when I was a kid, I wanted that treasure chest, and that dude got it, and now he's not sticking with me. So he, he immediately shows off that it's this sort of grappling claw. He shoots it out, and then it retracts back to him. And I was like, ah, I want that. And he's like, here's your elixir, kid. Which is important, because you got to save Kaylee.
0: Yeah, but I want that Grappling Claw. <laughs> I guess I should say that's actually the third thing. In fact, no, that may be the first thing I think of when I think of Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, is that Grappling Claw. I want one of those. I still want one of those. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, uh, you take the Elixir back to Foresta. Foresta is now the the town, and the level forest are all green again, because you've defeated the Fiend of Earth. You give her the elixir. She's still sick, though, so she can't come with you. She does tell you that she's trying to find her father, Captain Mac, and there's a guy in Aquaria named Spencer who's a friend of her father's who might know something. So you go through the Focus Tower. The Focus Tower, again, uh, White described it as the middle or the center of the world. It's really just the center of this small map, so it's like the center of the small island. But you you go through the forest uh, through the focus tower. You meet White again. He says something like uh, Phoebe will be important to your to your quest, but he doesn't tell you who Phoebe is. And then he takes off. Okay, fine. You get to the Aquaria region. It's all locked in ice. Uh, again, it's made clear pretty quickly that this is because of the fiend of water. In the Libra Temple, you meet Phoebe. She joins you. Spencer is her grandfather. So. She's gonna to try to help you get to Spencer. But you get to Aquaria, and it also is locked in ice. So you can't get to the underground tunnel where the big waterfall is, where Spencer's digging his tunnel. Try to get to Captain Mac, whose ship has been stranded on a rock in the area to the south. And they run through it just about that fast. <laughs> so what we need to do is we need to find the wake water to melt all the ice. But when we get to where it is, there isn't much left. White is there and he gives you a small flask of it and Phoebe's able to pour it on this little leaf in the center of town, but it only thaws out that one leaf. So what we decide we gotta do is go to the Wintry Cave. The Wintry Cave is another dungeon, not real remarkable. There is this neat part where the floor collapses out from underneath you and Benjamin falls all the way to the bottom and lands hard, but Phoebe, because she's got this cat claw weapon, is able to cling to the wall. And then she gives it to Benjamin, because, you know, that's what you do, I guess. And, and from there on, she uses her bow and arrow. There's a big squid at the end of the Wintry Cave. Uh, sure. You know, like you do. Yeah. Then you're able to get the Libra Crest, which will allow you to warp from the Libra Temple to the Life Temple. Oh, and I messed up. This is where you get the Wake Water. Oh. So you got to go through the Wintry Cave to get the Libra Crest to get the Wakewater. Then you only wake up that yeah. small piece in the center of town. And then that's when Phoebe decides, what we really ought to do is go to the Ice Pyramid, because that's where the water crystal is, and clearly the energy of the water crystal is being drained. So you make your way up to the Ice Pyramid. The Ice Pyramid exudes this energy that makes all the monsters invisible. So this is where we get sort of random encounters. Throughout, you can see the monsters and decide to fight them or not. Here, until you get the magic mirror, you're stuck fighting them whenever you accidentally bump into them. The fiend of water is the ice golem, you defeat that, you release the water crystal, its energies are being used properly again. Uh, and then the the region of Aquaria is no longer locked in ice, you can get into Spencer's place, which is this tunnel he's digging, like I said before. Uh, and he will talk to you about, oh you must be the prophesied one, and my buddy Captain Mac has been researching the prophecy, that's why he was out on this sailing mission. So you make your way back through the focus tower to the area of Fireburg. This is the fire region, obviously, of Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. It is experiencing a lot of earthquakes because the volcano of the region is is active. You get to Fireburg, you make your way to Reuben's house. Reuben's father has been trapped by a boulder, and the buddy that Ruben's father was with has run away and he's the only one who can like tell you how to get there but he's locked himself inside his house so fortunately there's a guy at the hotel who has uh, who can pick any lock and it's tristam and he's able to get you and reuben into this guy's house so you can shake him down so you can get a hold of the mega grenade which you can then use to free reuben's father then reuben sticks with you you go through the abandoned mine to fight the djinn which is how you uh, access the area where Reuben's father is trapped. You free him by tossing the grenade at the boulder. And once, once that happens, Reuben agrees to help you restore the fire crystal. So you go into the volcano and you go down into the volcano. It's kind of a cool dungeon. This place also has random encounters. There's uh, like smog. So there's random encounters in certain areas until you get the gas mask. And then you can see the... Yeah, this is actually
0: enemies. a memorable dungeon for a minute. Yeah, I, I, I like this part.
1: At the end, you fight the dual-headed Hydra. You kick its butt, you restore the Crystal of Fire, and then you and Ruben go through the Focus Tower. And we're, we're already to Chapter 4 here, the Crystal of Wind. So one is Earth, two is Water, three is Fire, and now here we are, Chapter 4. You're going across this big rope bridge. Final Fantasy has a thing for big bridges. And Tristam is knocked off the bridge by an enemy. Uh, And he says, you know, I'll be fine. You go on ahead. I'll catch up. Turns out he's more injured than he he wants to admit. You do run into Tristam here. He helps you get through the alive forest. Uh, But once you get to the giant tree, it refuses to speak to you. So you need to go back and find Kaylee because she speaks to trees, as we all know. And when she comes back, she's got better armor and a big freaking axe which is pretty cool.
0: Even more bigger axe. Even more
1: bigger axe. So, once you get Kaylee, you can go back to the the giant tree. He says he'll help you out, but that you need to go inside him and fight all those monsters. Final Fantasy also has this thing for making certain dungeons be inside of big monsters. Yeah. Which is awesome. <laughs> You're able to help the the giant tree and you make your way to the town of Windia. Oh, I neglected to mention. We said we wanted that grapple claw. Tristan gives it to you after you meet up with Kaylee for the second time. So he helps you out in your life force and then says, Hey kid, you earned this, and gives you the dragon claw. So then you, can, you have to use that to get through the dungeon because it grapples you to various spots. We'll get into more of that when we talk about the gameplay. In Windia, you meet Otto. Otto is Mystic Quest's Sid. In fact, I didn't know it at the time, but once you. Uh, delve deeper into the lore of Mystic Quest, you find out his name is Otto Sid Birkenstein, which I think we mentioned last episode. Yeah. Otto Sid Beckenstein tells you that his daughter Norma has crossed the Rainbow Road to get to the North Tower, but that the wind from Mount Gale uh, shook the road and broke it. I assume this is a reference to Norse mythology and the Rainbow Bridge. Yeah. The,
0: <laughs> the Bifrost. The Bifrost.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a Norse thing. Alright, so you go, to, uh, you go to Mount Gale, you rescue the little girl, you fight off the Headless horseman. then you make your way to Pazu's Tower. Pazu is our fourth fiend. This is an interesting aspect of this particular dungeon. Pazu's on every floor, so you have to find him and trap him on a certain floor so you can block off certain elevator uh, access points until you're finally able to stop him and fight him. This is also where you pick up the Excalibur for what it's worth. You defeat Pazu, or excuse me, Pazuzu, P-A-Z-U-Z-U, which I think is a reference to the zoo, Zu, Z U bird monsters that are common throughout Final Fantasy. Mm-hmm. You're able to defeat Pazuzu, restore the Crystal of Wind. Uh, you get a particular Giga that you can give to Otto to re-reinstate the Rainbow Bridge. Uh, you free Captain Mac from where his ship was stranded. You go back to Windia, and Phoebe rejoins you, and she's the one who joins you for the last climb up the Focus Tower, where you will refight each of the Vile Four, though there are different versions of the Vile Four. Flamorous Rex is now Scolorous Rex, and he's no longer Red. The Ice Golem is now the Stone Golem. The Twin, or the uh, Dual Head Hydra is now the Twin Head Wevrin. And Pazuzu is now Zuh, Z-U-H. At the very end, you make your way through this kind of cool space background to where the dark king is you fight the dark king you beat the dark king and then benjamin and phoebe sail off into the sunset and i know i skipped over a few things here and there but that's basically it
0: yeah that's (laughs) and 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 i think that goes to show first of all well done well done (laughs) And what, 20 uh, second of all,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: got through that pretty quick. And yeah, I mean, there's other stuff that happens, but not much of it of consequence. Even a lot of the stuff you went through there, like you said, and then they sail off into the sunset. And it's like, we've talked about a lot on this podcast going back to Matoya's cave one of the very first things that happens in the first game, the importance, not just of saving the world, but of saving the world for people you care about. And there's very little of that. I think that's where ultimately, and I'm jumping forward here a little bit, but we'll go through still the gameplay and the art and the music and and all of that. But where the story of the game i think ultimately fails is in giving you that the the world you really feel you need to fight for even you know the names of the towns it's just really Windia Fireburg <laughs> Leaf Town and Earthplace like Leaf <laughs> Town that, and like, Earthplace yeah okay. is that, uh, that was pretty- you know i mean but right it's it's it, it felt very draw by numbers And there are some references to Final Fantasy stuff, but even the things that they changed, it's like, why not just have that guy be Sid? Sure. If you're trying to introduce people to the world of Final Fantasy, not the (laughs) game world,
1: (laughs) the multiverse, the universe,
0: the multiverse of Final Fantasy, that really should have been Sid. I agree. And I think that's just kind of indicative of the mistakes that were made in the production of this. But some of the things that we really like about it, and some of the things I I don't as much, occur in the gameplay realm. I'll just say, plainly, a lot of the stuff I didn't like about the gameplay of this has to do with the thing I was just talking about. One, it's not indicative of how Final Fantasy plays. I don't know why you would make these changes if the goal of your game is to introduce a new audience to your franchise. But I do also have to admit that it felt very Zelda-like to me. The Being able to throw out, we talked about the claw. You can use the axe to chop down trees on the overworld map, and while that's kind of cool, and there's really no reason why, if that stuff already existed in other Final Fantasy games, it's not like it would ruin those for me, but it made it feel like something else. And I think ultimately that was a mistake.
1: I agree. I think it should have been more in line with what Final Fantasy was like at the time. At the same time, I appreciate that the, the various dungeons require you to push a boulder to jump over various uh, chasms. You know, you have to put the boulder in the right spot so you can go around to the ledge and then jump onto the boulder and then jump onto the other ledge. I think that's fun. The sword is required to turn certain switches. you got to use the claw to climb up certain walls. The explosives, we mentioned the mega grenade, I think. Right. The bombs and, and so on are required to break through certain walls. So I think it's a fun little aspect. I don't think it's terribly consequential but you're right, it doesn't really feel like anything else Final Fantasy has done. On the other hand, we have mentioned that Final Fantasy is as much about change as it is about staying the same. And so that it is different, doesn't bother me, that it doesn't that it's not of any real consequence kind of does bother me.
0: Yeah, I got to agree because, you know, we would see platforming elements in Ten Two, and I remember being a little reticent of that, but I thought they were executed so well and added something to that game and didn't take anything away from it. And I would say the same thing about Final Fantasy 15. In fact, you just mentioned there's a grenade throwing element. You kind of throw... Magic And so I know people hated that as a magic system, but there is a throwing system for certain items that I found really interesting and compelling that, you know... And of course, there's a lot of platforming in that game, too. In fact, there's extreme platforming in Final Fantasy 15. You can right. teleport all over the place.
1: No and, platforms needed.
0: Yeah, right. So in hindsight, I, I think I would take to those elements better. I think where they fall down is as we were talking about and failing to not just failing to represent, but it's like, why was time put in to having a working grappling claw mechanic, which I absolutely love, but not into deeper and more interesting characters, memorable towns and places, moments in the plot that you think about years later and go, Oh yeah, that, that really got to me. It's like, on the other hand, that Grappling Claw is pretty awesome. It's
1: pretty awesome. Well, the the Grappling Claw is awesome just in and of itself, but it means something that Noctis can teleport, right? It, ne- it means right. something that he can summon weapons and that his friends can summon weapons. It doesn't really mean anything that the Dragon Claw is cool. It's just cool. It is worth noting that you can swap between your weapons in combat and they each uh, have different applications, the axe is good against some enemies. The sword is good against some enemies. The claws do various uh, status ailments. And the bombs, the explosives, can hit all the enemies at once. So that's that's interesting, at least. There are various armors that you can get that just make you... that, that increase your defensive score, as well as make you immune to certain status ailments. And then there are the spells. There are four white spells four black spells and four wizard spells and they're basically what you would expect there's cure heal life and exit or or teleport in white Uh, quake fire blizzard and arrow in black and the wizard spells are basically second level black magic thunder white which is holy meteor and flare the item system is pretty pretty basic also there's a cure potion a heal potion a seed which recovers your magic points and a refresher, there's, uh, there's an aspect to the game where uh, enemies might reduce your stats, and the refreshers will replenish your stats in combat. Two other gameplay things I want to mention. One is just a visual aspect that I kind of dig. When you're fighting enemies, they slowly fall apart or change or show they're wounded in some way. I think that's fun. Yeah, I
0: really like that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a lot of fun. That's cool. And something that could have been done more and i don't know why it right. wasn't because they almost always too would have enemies where it's like one enemy but it's made up of multiple parts that right. you can target This is very common in final fantasy the left arm the right arm and the head you know of a big monster and so why not just be able to like knock it all the way off which they would eventually do for those types of battles sure. but for just regular battles watching the monster slowly fall apart is pretty cool <laughs>
1: The other big gameplay thing is that there are these battlefields. So when you're wandering around the overworld map, you don't wander. You go from one point to another point. So if the arrow is gray, that means you can't go that way. If the arrow is blinking red and yellow, that means you can go that way. And you just go from town to point to dungeon and so on. But there are these battlefields that are dotted throughout the world. And it's, it's sort of this green tombstone-looking thing with a pair of cross swords. And you you, uh, enter it and you just dumped right into a battle. You defeat all ten battles and you get a prize. It's usually uh, experience, but sometimes it's certain items. There are some pieces of armor that you can only get by defeating the battlefield. Other various items also, not just armor. And I kind of dig that as a way to circumvent the random encounter problem, or what some people consider to be the random encounter problem. But it gets kind of grindy. Like if I want to jump through all 10 battles real quick, it takes five minutes of just jamming the A button until I'm done.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm of two minds on this for similar reasons. I think it's actually pretty cool as a gameplay mechanic. It gives you as the player a little bit more control over when you feel like playing the game and doing a bunch of battling and leveling up your characters and when you feel like going through the story. If it was a more compelling story, especially I think that would fit for a player like me, who a lot of times I just want to do the story part of the thing and having a bunch of random encounters, like running into a long dungeon when you've got like an hour and a half to play before you're going to go to bed and you want to know what happens next in the story. That's why you turned the video game on today. And then you've got to go through this super long dungeon with a bunch of random encounters. I kind of hate that. (laughs) And so... I, I get the appeal of this. On the other hand, I do think there, you, you lose something, and it's best when it's balanced right, but you lose something when your party of adventurers isn't constantly in imminent danger. Right. That's going back to Dungeons & Dragons, Lord of the Rings. There are random encounters in Lord of the Rings movies Like, that's how important randomly being attacked on the road to what you're doing is important to understanding the mindset of the people who would go on an adventure like this. And so in a way, maybe that contributes to the lack of character depth that I feel in this game. That, you know, we talked about Benjamin not having to deal much with this actual tragedy he experienced. And it seems like there's very little consequence to the actions of the characters. And maybe it's because it seems like they deal with one problem at a time,
1: which none
0: of us in real life do.
1: (laughs) I barely deal with my problems at all. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, to that point of, of being in imminent danger, it is possible. I said there was only a couple other things I wanted to mention about gameplay. Here's one more thing I want to mention. It is possible yeah. to suddenly die out of nowhere. There are enemies who can petrify you. So if they do that, if one enemy petrifies your, one of your characters and then you don't have time to get to your heal potion or your heal po- or your healing spell doesn't take for some reason and suddenly both of you are petrified, you lose the game. Or if you're put to sleep or confused and then they start using the, the petrification magics, y- you'll just lose out of nowhere. And it's kind of... For the game that's supposed to be the easy one, it's surprising how many times in my most recent playthrough, so that I could research for this episode of Final Fantasy Weekly, that I, was ju- I just suddenly died for what seemed like no reason. Just like, all of a sudden, I could barely do anything. However, that said, if you die in combat, a screen will pop up that says, give up, yes or no. And if you choose yes, then that's the end of the game, and you have to start over. But if you choose no, it just starts you at the beginning of the battle again.
0: And I actually love that. And they do that again in Final Fantasy 13. And as someone who really enjoys these games for their stories, I don't mind a challenge, and I like playing the video game, but if I've just gone an hour through a dungeon and I get killed by something random, and now I've got to do all that over again before I can get to the next part in the story, that's easily the most frustrating thing that happens to me when I'm playing Final Fantasy games. So the option to just start the battle over again from right there. Love it. So one last thing on gameplay, and it actually transitions because this is a bit of a visual thing as well, but the way that the battles are presented looks like a fantasy star game, not like a Final Fantasy game. Again, something I'm of two minds about. One, I kind of like it. I actually like the anxiety presented by the monster or the enemy coming right at you, facing you, and you battling back against them and and facing them. But it is strange that, again, for something that's supposed to bring people into the franchise, that's not how any of the other Final Fantasy games look. And I like being able to see all my awesome character sprites, my heroes of the story lined up, and I can see their faces, and I can see their battle animations in the middle of battle. Which does take us right into our next section, our next topic here, which is the art. And I don't know how long we're going to spend on this. I'll see what you've got <laughs> to say about
1: it. But I don't have a whole lot to say. I think the aesthetic is fine. Benjamin's sort of a, an everyman kind of guy. He's just a, I don't know, typical white dude, I guess, if we want to assume that white dudes are the typical. Sure. I think Kaylee's got a, a kind of striking character design. She's got a bright green dress, bright red hair, and a giant axe. I think that's a cool design.
0: Yeah, I like her design a lot, actually. Looking back on it, I didn't remember her as well, but looking at it now, I think she's a design that, honestly, they could reuse. They could just rip off that entire character and bring her into a modern game. Uh, Kaylee is pretty cool. And there's no reason she should be stuck in this (laughs) otherwise kind of bland universe.
1: Well, for uh, a franchise that uses and reuses its ideas seeing these five as a as an adventuring troop somewhere like if, if they if you saw these five characters sitting at a bar in Final Fantasy 14 I'd dig it sure yeah Phoebe is you know because she's the water representative she's a blonde woman with a bow and, and blue clothing Ruben is a heavily armored young man wielding a morning star and he's got a cool helmet with a red stone in it. Tristam is, he's sort of dressed to blend into the desert, which is where you first meet him. He's got these sort of off-white clothing, and he's also got a helmet, as, as opposed to like a, a cloth hood and mask, which would be more typical of Final Fantasy ninjas. Though sometimes Final Fantasy ninjas have helmets, so I don't know. It turns out white, I didn't mention this, white is the crystal of light. So that he's sort of an old sage floating on a cloud is not totally ridiculous. Sure. Again, but it's sort of just a generic design. Like, they're all these generic white guys, which is fine, but yeah. it's just... It's a bit cookie-cutter, I guess. I don't dislike the characters. All of these characters stick with me for one reason or another. I, I Again, I would dig seeing them redone somewhere or, or done with a little more depth somewhere. In fact... I think it is disappointing that there are only two characters that you can have in your party at a time. I thought throughout the game that, you know, all five of us would go on to fight the Dark King at the end, not just Ben and Phoebe. So, you know, again, it's not it doesn't blow me away, but it's the design of the characters and the design of the enemies is not disappointing. It's just a little bland, I guess.
0: Yeah, I was going to mention that about the monsters. You know, we've been talking about how Final Fantasy had been coming more and more into its own, especially by the fourth installment, getting away from more standard ghouls and goblins and imps. And, you know, but here in this game, we've got skeletons and minotaurs and evil trees at what I've called before standard fantasy fair. And Medusa's. None, right, Medusa's. And nowhere are there bombs, which I don't know if we've seen those yet they're, in the they're franchise. Because they
1: destroyed the town of Mist.
0: Oh, right, right. Of course they are. You're right. Of course
1: they are. There's squids so, and crabs as opposed to sort of the illithid type creatures that they have instead. There's there's no uh, you know Moogles or chocobos. Though so there is a chocobo weather vane in Windia. But yeah, there's there's none of the Final Fantasy unique, or very little in the way of the Final Fantasy unique stuff. All
0: right. Okay, we've been harping a little bit on this game. Let's talk about something that's objectively awesome for a minute. Excellent. Now, the soundtrack to this game overall, I've got to say, as I re-listened to the whole thing, I was slightly disappointed. I was like, oh, man, I thought it was a little bit better than this listening back to it. But the tracks that hit really, really hit. So let's just start with those so I can play a little bit of them off the top. I'm just going to start with the really good stuff. And we mentioned up top about how both the director and writer of this game were first and foremost musicians. And I think it kind of shows (laughs) that (laughs) that, uh, they had a focus in this particular area. But I'm just going to play the bass, like the Battle 1 music that plays every time you got into a battle Miss, this, you can tell that it's put together like I would put this on par with the best of Mega Man music. And that is a high praise. any good Final Fantasy game, there is boss battle music. And I think the thing that I find most interesting about this stuff is like Nobuo Umatsu found a way to create this kind of tension by drawing on a lot of the same influences, which are essentially, not to get too broad, but 80s hair metal bands like Iron Maiden and Poison and even Black Sabbath. Those kinds of rushing guitar-driven, you know, really forward, fast-paced kind of riffs, but Uematsu would just put those on Eastern and Western orchestral instruments. A lot of string work, a lot of trumpets, a lot of soaring melodies over this awesome percussion work, where these guys just embraced the rock and roll roots of the thing went with straight up guitar samples because they're in rock and roll bands just went with guitars bass keys and essentially pump out some really awesome 80s metal tracks just without the weird screaming guy at the front of it (laughs) Yeah, I could listen to that stuff all day, but we do have a few other tracks we've got to talk about here. Uh, we mentioned one of the saving graces uh, of this game, and it's all the way around with the character Tristram, who does some interesting things, who has unclear motivations throughout the game, who's not always necessarily on your side throughout the game, and he gets a fun little theme, again, something we haven't heard a lot of in Final Fantasy, it's based more in 70s funk, which is just, you know, not an area we've gone to much. And it's an odd choice for what is a roguelike character who you would go with something a little bit more mysterious, your intuitions would tell you. Uh, Shadows theme comes to mind.
1: Well, Shadows theme, we're jumping ahead several episodes, but Shadows theme is kind of western. Right, it's like an American Western piece, whereas a ninja is steeped in Eastern folklore and and history. So that this ninja, who's maybe a little less Eastern folkloric ninja and a little more pop culture ninja, gets this sort of '70s funk. Is that's an interesting dichotomy?
0: Yeah, it is. And so, if you're taking to heart the notion of Final Fantasy is a blending of all of these different elements together, then it certainly nails it on that respect. So I also think it's a good core theme for the upbeat, fun nature of this game. Uh, I mentioned briefly earlier that I think one of the areas it does succeed is in its sense of humor, is in those moments where Benjamin turns around and goes... Well, this is all kind of weird, right? <laughs> and this is just a fun theme, and and Tristam is a fun character. And hearing it, and it always seemed like when it would play, he would come like running onto the screen. He never walked <laughs> slowly into a scene ever. And uh yeah, well, heart of a happy adventure.
1: It's uh, it's interesting you say it that way because the next game we're going to go really in depth on is, of course, Final Fantasy V. And Final Fantasy V has a lot of those aspects to it where it's a little bit goofy in some ways. The characters are always ribbing on each other. They're they're often punning. There's a lot of the spirit of adventure is a big theme running throughout. So that M- Mystic Quest shares that aspect with Final Fantasy V is a peculiar observation to me because Final Fantasy V is so well thought of.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that's probably just because it does... A lot of other stuff, but we'll get to that. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, I feel like the main theme, and it's not really presented as such, but there is a main theme to Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, and it variations of it play when you enter each of the four main elemental towns. And I think this whole concept is kind of indicative of what Final Fantasy Mystic Quest is there's something good at the core of this piece of music, and when it's reinterpreted, you find the depth therein, and you get how it can take on slightly different feels as any good main theme would. Leitmotif is very important when you're trying to connect a story that's spanning, you know, Supposedly vast distances and having big ideas. But this piece of music is also very simple. It's very repetitive. It doesn't really go anywhere. And when presented in its most basic state, when it's not being, you know, slightly adapted for one of the towns, and I particularly like the Firebird rendition yeah. of it. Yeah. But. When it's just on its own, it could easily sound like background menu music to any other video game. And that's kind of a one of those barometers I'll use. When a piece doesn't go anywhere, it oftentimes will start to sound like that to me. It will fade into, it's just there so that there's something there. That's kind of this whole game, right? It's got an interesting core. There were some good ideas to be had. Unfortunately, they weren't expanded upon, and when ultimately presented, they come across as remarkably simple and can fade into the background.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I I agree. Again, I look back on this game with a lot of fondness. When I played it again to, to talk about it for this episode, I found myself a little bored here and there because i wanted to i wanted to take my time i wanted to do all the things i wanted to defeat all the all the battlegrounds and i did and it got a little tedious here and there so again i have a lot of fondness for it we talk about games we would like to see redone or remade or or updated i'd almost like to see this one ahead of just about anything else because i think there is as you said the core of something there there's a lot of potential for a, a fun game, even if it is short and simple. So yeah, it is sort of just there to be there. But and I've
0: made a ton of musical analogies on this podcast, and I will continue to do so <laughs> because that's <laughs> another area where I just I think a lot about it. And I've actually tried to make music, and I think sometimes successfully so, and never made a video game. So I I can understand right, right. it in these terms. But I was actually just watching a video on a bunch of songs that were covers that you didn't necessarily know were covers and I think by now most people know that I Will Always Love You was written by Dolly Parton and sure. things like All Along the Watchtower were yep. actually written by Bob Dylan. Yep. but a lot of people didn't know those things at first for a reason and it's sometimes because the original presentation, I'm not necessarily saying that's true of those two songs, they're just well known examples. Yeah, don't be of,
1: picking on Dolly Parton I would
0: never. (laughs) But they are well known. Those are songs that are well known by other people more than the originals. And I think what that shows you is that sometimes an idea. And I actually do think this is true. There's not a bigger. Well, there. (laughs) That's not true. There are bigger Bob Dylan fans than me. But I am a huge Bob Dylan fan. And I will say that his original version of All Along the Watchtower is pretty straightforward and basic. And what Jimi Hendrix did with it was absolutely insane and amazing. He found the core of what made that a good song and turned it into something incredible. Something more than I think anybody who had ever heard that original would have thought it could do. And... So I I think that that's kind of what you're saying here about Mystic Quest, that if somebody got what it was at its core but could expand on it, it could be really cool. That being said, I don't know that we need to really beat that dead horse by going through our five (laughs) criteria like we do at the end of every other game. I, I think it's clear here that we both think that this was a worthwhile endeavor, I believe on the part of the people who made it, but ultimately unsuccessful, both in terms of its execution and ultimately when your goal is to bring people in, if you don't do that, if you don't, like I don't like using sales numbers as the be all end all for the quality of a product by any means, but when you admittedly simplify it, to try to make it appeal to a broader audience, and then it doesn't appeal to that audience. It's tough to call your piece of art a success. But we that doesn't mean it's not worthy of study and time and conversation as we've given it here, I think.
1: I agree. I think it is. it is definitely worthy of being in the conversation. It's worthy of remembering in the pantheon of Final Fantasy games and universes, but ultimately it is. I'm not gonna say that I think it's a failure, but I also don't think it's a success. I think, as a game, it is mediocre, but it doesn't it doesn't fail in the same way that other games at the time might have failed. Um, that is to say, it it functions as a game. There, you, there are things you do. You progress through the story. You progress to the end. You finish the game, and then it's done. So it it does all of those things, but it does it it doesn't in a way when where you're comparing it to other games, or other Final Fantasies, it's not as interesting. It, just not as much depth, not as much choice, and the plotline compared to Final Fantasy IV before it and Final Fantasy V after it is lackluster again i don't think it fails but i do think it is mediocre which is almost worse (laughs) it's almost like you said it fades into the background it's not known for being a spectacular failure it's known for being spectacularly mediocre
0: yeah and i i think for me and I'm, i'm not sure i've ever said it exactly this way before and if i have it bears repeating that final fantasy is about ideas like To me, that's when it's at its best, when it's giving me ideas. Think about something I've never thought about before. Show me something I've never seen before. Give me an experience I've never had before. Take me to a completely different place. Give me that kind of otherworldly experience, and this is a game with, like, no ideas.
1: Right. Yeah. Certainly, nothing new. It's all, I mean, we've got the Four Fiends. The Focus Tower is the Tower of Babel. The Dark King is the Emperor of Palamisia, if you like, it, or even just Garland. It's not. Right. I think it, it's interesting. Kaylee's a druid. We don't really have druids in Final Fantasy, but we have, later we have Geomancers. Or I guess we had yeah. Geomancers in three. So, yeah, it's not. Yeah. It is what it is. It's fine. It could have been better. Yeah. <laughs> so, Wait, so that's man, it, it for episode to... 21 of yeah, Final right, Fantasy yeah. Weekly <laughs> so thanks for joining it. us
0: but I think one thing we can say for sure and this is something where we will always stand on the side of this game is that this is a Final Fantasy game it belongs in the family it's right there in the name and this series as we've said many times before has always been about trying something new trying something different branching out Doing it differently, and they sure did it differently here. (laughs) And, sure thing. While we're saying that it does not succeed in what it attempted to do, we're both very happy that they attempted to do it. Thank you for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned by reaching out on Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can hit us up on our Patreon at patreon.com FFWeekly. That's also where you can find a whole bunch more episodes all the way up through the end of Final Fantasy VII. You can also find Studio Ghibli Weekly, at patreon.com slash ffweekly. Just getting started on that. The second episode is about to go up as I'm recording this. Very excited to get started talking about Hayao Miyazaki films with my brother. Going to be a whole lot of fun. And if you're interested in even more video game talk, like my reactions to the Game Awards or reviews of Horizon Zero Dawn and Child of Light and all kinds of other things, or comic book movies like The Eternals, I'm going to start watching Wheel of Time and reviewing those episodes as we go through it. All kinds of fun, nerdy stuff for you over at patreon.com slash DC Productions.